Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we look ahead to the stories and events that are going to be grabbing the headlines and moving markets in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means tracking the likely course of inflation and interest rates on both sides of the Atlantic as the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve get ready for their monthly meetings. And as Britain's big banks prepare for the forthcoming reporting season, it's a bit of uplifting music. That a little bit later, I'm joined in the studio by Philip Aldrich, The Times Economics Editor and Columnist, Catherine Griffiths, our Banking Editor, and on the line from Westminster is Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor of The Times. A warm welcome to you all, Philip. Let's start with you. Uh, Bank of England quarterly inflation report, and of course we have a meeting the next day of the Monetary Policy Committee meeting. Just listen to a clip here. This is what Governor Mark Carney said at his most recent, last inflation report. The biggest determinant of the UK's medium-term prosperity will be the country's new relationship with the EU and the reforms that it catalyzes. Those processes will also have a significant bearing on inflation over the next few years through several channels. First, the perceptions of market participants regarding this economy's future growth will potentially influence asset prices, particularly the exchange rate. Second, firms' assessments of the outlook for demand and the ease of future trade will affect their investments. Third, the cost of borrowing and the return to saving faced by households as well as their confidence in the economic situation will determine consumer spending. And finally, by the end of the MPC's forecast period, the UK economy's supply could be affected by a new set of trading arrangements with Europe and potentially other countries. But coming off the back of that, what do you expect the most striking features of this forthcoming inflation report to be? Probably would be a slight upgrade in the growth forecast because the economy has shown more resilience. And the governor hinted at that when he was before MPs recently as well. Inflation has also come in slightly above forecast, so uh, there, could, there could be a revision upwards in the, in the inflation outlook as well. Uh, and what all that means for interest rate policy is they'll probably just make a bunch of excuses for leaving it on hold for, uh, you know, well, they're certainly going to leave it on hold next month, but they will also, for February, but they will, they're also probably likely to signal that, you know, rates are not going to be going anywhere uh, for quite some time still. Sam, if I could bring you in here from Westminster, I mean, is that, do you see, is broadly good news for Philip Hammond and, and his plans for, for managing the, the national debt? Well, I think the Treasury always welcomes broadly strong 
economic news or stronger than expected economic news. But what's going on at the moment, as you saw this today to a certain extent with GDP, is that the longer you have uh, good, strong economic data after the Brexit debate, the more wind there is in the sails of all those people who supported Brexit and um, push back against those who are issuing dire warnings uh, about what might happen through the process of Britain's exit from the European Union. So in effect, the strong economic data does have a direct impact on what goes on um, over here in SW1 because it strikes me that the strong economic news counterbalances and to a large extent undermines some of the warnings that we've heard in recent days about some of the decisions that government must take on the customs union, on the implications for the manufacturing sector, on the implications for the aerospace sector. So long as Brexiteers um, around the Prime Minister and in the Conservative Party can say, well, look, you can warn whatever you like, but your warnings of doom and gloom don't come true, the harder it is for business and industry groups who are worried about individual parts of the government's big overhaul of the way it does everything as part of Brexit won't get listened to. There, there is a, an issue around uh, a you know, positive point to be made around strong growth in that it, it has a feedback effect into confidence. So you know, the, the longer this, this period of resilience lasts, the more businesses will think, well, you know, the doom and gloom uh, hasn't emerged and we should just get on with things. Um, that was, uh, I was in Davos recently and that was certainly an impression you got there that, you know, all these bad things have happened. Business never wanted Brexit. Business never wanted a Donald Trump. And yet, you know, life goes on. They talked about you know, the commercial environment, the commercial backdrop actually being you know, reasonably good. And, and Philip Hammond at the time of the GDP numbers was also talking about how he expected, you know, he, he talked to businesses and he was saying business investment decisions have been put on hold. So there's this pause by companies. And uh, if if we get, you know, just a, a modicum of positive interaction on the discussions between Brussels and, and Westminster about our future trading relationships, um, that could help release, uh, release some of this sort of pent up investment planned by businesses, which... It's it's a positive it's a positive way of looking at things, uh, uh, but certainly the chancellor is kind of trying to uh, trying to promote a sort of more confident outlook like that. Catherine, if I could just mention here, I mean the higher interest rates, I suppose, will be on the cards one day. How is that collectively going to hit the banking sector in terms of the amount of unsecured lending they've made, particularly on credit cards, as we fuel our our spending habits? Rising interest rates work in two ways for banks. On the one hand, they're bad because some customers will get into trouble and not be able to pay back their loans. And as you say, on credit cards in particular, we had Santander this week warning on on consumer lending. On the other hand, of course, Lloyds has just bought a huge credit card business, MBNA, so obviously it, as the largest retail bank in this country, doesn't feel too worried. But on the other hand, rising interest rates are good news for banks because they can make more profits in a rising interest rate environment. So it's really how each particular bank is kind of positioned. Phil, economically, we've looked at this fan chart they always talk about in the inflation report, don't they, the probability of, of where interest rates be. Just experiment. I mean, how can you pinpoint a two percent target two years now with particularly with all the turmoil going on now with it where inflation will be in 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 two to three years time uh yeah it, the the bank has been saying recently that the uh sort of uncertainty around its central forecasts are more uh is more exaggerated than usual so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot going on there's trump and his fiscal his fiscal splurge which is going to be inflationary he's going to if he does if he does close the borders that that in itself will be uh you know 
inflationary for for the US, uh, you know, which will spill over uh, elsewhere as well. You know, we've got the effect of the of, of the cheap pound, which is uh, which is clearly inflationary. So set against that is the is this is the Brexit issue, which could still be quite damaging to growth. So which itself would be deflationary. So it really, the, it, it is it is a very very wide range of uh, uh, possibilities. But the bank is expecting inflation to hit 2.8% uh, sometime in 2018. That's where it would peak. Uh, it may push that up at, at the February inflation report, a small amount. But the issue, I suppose, is the long-term position of inflation. If this is just an exchange rate-led inflation boost, that will that will dissipate after a couple of years. And they'll say that if you look, at, if you look through that, if you just look at the underlying rate of inflation, there's not too much to worry about. Sam, we were talking there about, about America. We touched on it briefly. And, and the Federal Open Market Committee, of course, uh, will be holding their first interest rate meeting of the... Uh, of the Trump administration. I mean, what's the feeling in Westminster so far about what we've heard from Donald Trump, particularly apropos his approach to business and the economy? And how is it going to impact back over here, do you think? Well, I think we're still at a stage where there's a great deal of nervousness and uncertainty below the surface. Above the surface, Theresa May is trying to build a strong public relationship and personal relationship with Donald Trump. Um, his harade, uh, say, as a means of ensuring that Britain can have the biggest possible influence uh, on the areas that matter, like Russia. You know, you talk to officials and they kind of are mixed about which is more dangerous for the British economy, Trump or Brexit. Now, some people would claim that there are benefits to be had from uh, a strong UK-US trade relationship uh, and, the ne- and uh, there are opportunities to be exploited in several different markets if we can sign some kind of deal the second we leave the European Union. But again, there's a lot, great deal of scepticism. Uh, US standards are very different from European Union standards, so that will cause quite a great deal of um, uh, uncertainty if we start operating a sort of two-standards regime. Uh, and we just don't know whether or not Donald Trump personally will be in a, in um, kind of keen to see all, this all the way through once all the sort of niggles and the problems come up of negotiating one of these things. It's quite a detailed and complex piece of work. So I just think that there's a great deal of unknowns in the relationship. And uh, if there's something that Whitehall doesn't like, it's uh, an, a large number of unknowns. There's one element of the trade deal that we're, we may develop with the US is that, is that there's the US administration led by the trade arm uh, led by Wilbur Ross, who's this billionaire a businessman. Um, he, he They've produced a document where they say that they want all of the trade arrangements the U.S. have to be fair, by which they mean that uh, there will be no deficit. The, the, the uh, America will either be a net exporter to its trade partner, or it'll just be completely even. It won't be a net importer. And at the moment, the U.K. is a net exporter to the U.S. in our trade relationships. So if America wants to do a trade deal with the U.K., and if they stick to these principles that have been laid out in this Wilbur Ross document, then they would actually effectively want us to take more U.S. exports and to lessen our our exports to the U.S., which at first glance wouldn't look like the best trade deal for the UK. Have we got any options, do you think, Sam? So there are certainly uh, people around senior Brexiteer cabinet ministers who are urging the government to go long on the US-UK trade deal because of all the dangers, because they're worried that the US will get one over us. us. I think that Philip is absolutely right with his um, analysis, and there's a lot of feeling in Whitehall that we need to do more work. The concern, I think, around the place is that the political symbolism of a quick deal with the US, something that the EU was famously unable to get nailed down, might outweigh in the medium term for many MPs the benefits 
the actual benefits or otherwise of the deal that's uh, of the deal that's negotiated. So, as ever in politics, it's a tug between uh, political symbolism and benefit and true economic gain. Um, and we we are yet to see with Theresa May what kind of politician she truly is with having to choose between those two outcomes. Well, it's a rock and a hard place, it sounds like to me. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll be talking to Catherine about the bank reporting season. The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain. 2016 has been branded the year of the SME. This is your year. Time for your business to stand out. Are you ready? Vodafone's Ready Business Britain, in association with The Times and Sunday Times, has all the advice, insights and analysis your business needs to make this your year. Get ready. Visit readybusinessbritain.co.uk. Welcome back. Now, as we mentioned, the banks are gearing up for their reporting season and that clip we played at the top was from the Royal Bank of Scotland's teaser for the Six Nations Rugby Tournament. Just as millions of long-suffering shareholders are prepared to hear how their shares are doing or their investments rather. Catherine, uh, great sporting event to be associated with with for RBS, but uh, not a great prelude with a, a potentially stonking fine. So what can we expect, first of all, from the state bank? Good news or bad news? They'll report a very large loss and that will look terrible and everyone will get very upset about it. Um, RBS has made more than £50 billion of losses since the financial crisis, which is upsetting for the British public, given that we own 72% of the bank. But I mean, the reality is actually that it's repairing itself quite well and that once this, there's some big issues that it needs to resolve, one of them is... US litigation and we had something this week on that that they're getting closer to settling US litigation um, it also has to sell off a business um, which it's called William and Williamson Glynn which is proving very problematic but once it's done those things it's actually kind of emerging as a reasonably profitable bank as, as indeed it should be it's a very large bank in this country and, and despite everything retail banking is actually very um, profitable in Britain so I think that towards Later on this year, I think things could look quite different for RBS, actually, quite a lot more positive. Its shares have had a reasonable run recently, and it's still a very bad share price compared to what um, taxpayers paid for their shares, but um, it's going in the right direction. And Lloyd's, of course, is is in certainly better shape, isn't it, than it was? If yes. we look at I mean, it's sold down most of their state now, haven't they? Yeah, the government will sell out of Lloyd's in the next two or three months probably um, and be completely clear be completely clear be per- completely back in private shareholder hands which will be seized on by the government as a as a huge victory and vindication of their strategy yeah I, I saw a wince from you when Catherine Philip when Catherine mentioned that stonking fine I mean it's enough to GDP isn't it for many small economies almost the 50, 50 billion is just an enormous amount of money to lose. I think about half of it was lost in the first year, though, wasn't it? I mean, it's such a mess, RBS. I mean, it had this huge investment bank, which was completely out of control. And then they did all these acquisitions, and they just tapped on businesses and didn't integrate them properly. And the technology is a disaster, which is why Williams and Glynn is is so hard to sell. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, Catherine, but it just, it does take a long time. And it's it's going to be, it's going to be a decade Maybe more than a decade well, before we really begin to start selling it off, I guess. Um, the Chancellor has even suggested it might not it might not be sold, uh, any of the shares may not be sold until sort of 2021, 2022. Sam? I think the truth is that we are in the opening months of a new government, and it's fair to say that this new government and the, and the new Chancellor haven't had particular time to focus on RBS, which is very, very much a legacy issue. But the truth is that all of these losses have ha- happened effectively under Plan A. We have 
pretty more or less the same strategy ever since it was um, mostly nationalised all those years ago. There are some very senior policymakers uh, pushing to look again about whether or not we shouldn't do something more radical, whether or not we shouldn't explore the kind of bad bank, bad bank done properly. If we are years and years away from uh, beginning to sell it back to the taxpayer, there is a feeling that maybe some some of these options that were discussed in what was it, 2012, 2013, shouldn't be looked at again. Um, But then again, I think the reality is that this government has so much on its plate uh, that that big decisions on RBS feel like something that's just not high enough on its agenda to actually force through. But that doesn't mean there aren't voices suggesting pretty radical things. Catherine, I was thinking, is it uh, Banco Santander's looking at buying some of the Williams and Glynn's branches? Since the financial crisis, we have so many more banks now. We've got Aldermore, we've got Shawbrook. We've, we have got the challenger banks that were originally envisaged by Alistair Darling, perhaps. So we're in a better place now, aren't we, going forward? Yes, uh, we certainly do have a lot more um, challenger banks. And that after the crisis, there were people in government and sort of senior bankers who said this needed to happen in order to kind of create competition but I think anyone would probably say any that really you know it's hard to see any real change Um, you have all sorts of kind of internet startup type banks promising that what they're doing is really reinventing banking but I think someone once said to me that the only truly innovative thing that's happened in banking in the last generation is the cash machine and I think in some ways that's correct. OK, well, thank you all very much. And we'll leave it there for now. That's just about it. But uh, remember, do keep up to date with all the news and analysis online on your phone, tablet and in the paper. And if you would like to become a subscriber, just go to thetimes.co.uk. It costs £1. If you want to hear us weekly, you can subscribe through iTunes. And please do feel free to post your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can email us alternatively. My thanks to Philip Aldrich, Catherine Griffiths, and on the line from Westminster, Sam Coates. They're on Twitter, so please do follow them. And please join us again next week. Thanks for listening. The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.